The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Using Biologics to Manage Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis, Compare Your Approach with Experts from Around the World. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash rbz860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to this PeerView webcast. My name is Jacob Zissen. I'm from Copenhagen in Denmark. And I'm very happy to take part in this webinar where we're going to discuss how to use biologics to manage pediatric and adult moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Today's panelists are me, me myself, and it's also Dr. Ko from Singapore and Dr. Siegfried from St. Louis. And with that introduction, I'd like to give the word to Dr. Siegfried who will teach us around how to assess AD severity. The floor is yours, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tucson. I'm going to start with a little introduction just to bring us to the subject. Atopic dermatitis, as most of you probably know, is not a single disease but a phenotype. The really common, the estimated prevalence is 15 to 20% in children and 1% to 3% in adults, which because there are so many more adults in the world is probably a bigger number than the total number of children, but it is more common uh, presenting in childhood. The burden of symptoms can be very profound. It, it, it adversely impacts sleep, as we'll talk about here in a minute, mental health, and quality of life, many aspects of quality of life. For most people who are atopic or have atopic dermatitis, there are several morbidities that are associated with that, including rhinitis, conjunctivitis, asthma, as well as eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders. Now that we have more understanding and a, a robust pipeline of newer treatments for atopic dermatitis, it's important to consider a systemic treatment for patients who have poorly controlled, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, with impaired quality of life and associated comorbidities. This is a summary of the American Academy of Dermatology Diagnostic Features of Atopic Dermatitis. And again, because it's a phenotype, it's a clinical diagnosis. And so the essential features are listed here, itching, a typical morphology of eczema, which we'll talk about here in a second, and age-specific patterns, and most importantly, a chronic or re relapsing history. So those are key features in diagnosing atopic dermatitis. There's different patterns that you'll notice if you see lots of patients with this, and I'll show you some pictures of that here in the next slide. Uh, importantly, in most patients, there's an early age of onset. Often there's a history of atopy, both personal or family history, as well as just chronically dry skin, which is often associated with ichthyosis vulgaris or filagrin uh, mutations. There's associated features as well, which are all listed here, and these may or may not be present in the patient that you're diagnosing, but, uh, you know, keratosis pilaris, ocular periorbital changes, other types of regional findings, atypical vascular responses, that includes facial pallor and white dermatographism, delayed blanching responses. I don't always use all of these, but they're characteristic of, uh, or very suggestive, I should say, of the condition. As I mentioned, the characteristic distribution shifts over time. So in infants, it tends to be a little bit more generalized. Often there's diaper area sparing. As you get to a little bit older children and adults, there's accentuation in the popliteal and the antecubital fossa, as you see here. Excoriations and lichenification are associated with more severe and more chronic disease. 
I think it's important to recognize that skin of color has different types of features, and it makes it a little bit difficult to assess severity as been defined by lighter skin types. So follicular and papular and, and numular morphology is more commonly seen in, in darker skin types. It's really hard to see erythema, so you have to kind of take that into consideration as you're adjusting your sensitivity to how to diagnose severity. Lichenification tends to be more prominent in people with skin of color, as you can see here in these pictures, especially the little boy on the right with that severe lichenification over his knees and his entire legs. And then hyperpigmentation is a very characteristic feature. Personally, I think hyperpigmentation is much more common in eczema than for example, other inflammatory, chronic inflammatory diseases like psoriasis where you see more prominent hypopigmentation. The other thing that's important to know is that atopic dermatitis disproportionately affects skin of color. I previously mentioned the other morbidities that are associated with atopic dermatitis, and, and there's been many models that talk about the timing of development of these morbidities. This is one proposed model of the atopic march. Uh, where you can see that um, rhinitis, uh, sorry, that atopic dermatitis starts early in infancy, also with, with food allergies, and then it's later followed by uh, rhinitis and asthma uh, it, it, as people get older. But not everyone exhibits these types of uh, patterns. It can be different in different people. That's been described. I wanted to stress the impact on sleep. So sleep is one of the last clinical frontiers that people can obviously study, but it has such an important impact. And severe pruritus, which is a hallmark of atopic dermatitis, the biggest impact that it has really on sleep. And then subsequently, there's an impaired quality of life. It's associated with a variety of behavioral problems associated with poor growth because growth hormone uh, secretion happens when you're asleep mostly. And that impact is not just for the effect person, but also the rest of the family. So it's really important to ask about sleep and sleep impairment and to follow that improvement in sleep as people are treated successfully. So my section is talking about how do you actually assess severity? Well, a variety of tools have been developed for using in clinical trials, and these include the easy score, the patient-oriented score ad, or the score ad score, and you can see the definitions where you can quantify mild, moderate, or severe disease. But in clinical practice, these are really not very practical to use. The most practical tool that I use in my clinical practice is the investigator global assessment, which is just a five-point scale of a gestalt of how severe the eczema is. Again, I'm very familiar with uh, rating easy scores and score ad scores, but I, I don't find them practical to do in clinical practice. But it's very easy to tell whether somebody's clear, almost clear, or has mild, moderate, or severe disease based on all of these criteria that are listed here. In some cases, people use subjective assessments, the patient-reported outcomes, and there have been several tools that have been developed, the Dermatology Quality of Life Index, the Patient-Oriented Index, and the Paritis uh, Scale Index. And, and these are all developed and they're all validated, uh, but again, they are somewhat time-consuming. They're not something that I personally use in my clinical practice, but they're available, readily available. You can find um, resources online to use these in your clinical practice uh, if you want. 
If you look at the outcomes using these uh, validated measures, you can see that the impact of atopic dermatitis on quality of life is profound. So you can see both limiting the lifestyle, uh, limiting social interactions due to appearance, and then uh, l- impact on just activity levels in people who are affected. And that is directly proportional to the severity of their disease. So now we're going to view uh, a patient video just as a good example of how atopic dermatitis can impact life and quality of life. I was diagnosed with atopic dermatitis as an infant. Um, I was about three months old, and um, so I don't have any memory of it, but my my parents uh, had talked a lot about how it was how my struggles as an infant were apparent from pretty much right on um, and how you know, as a baby, it was it was really hard for me to be comforted and to sleep at night. And that continued throughout my adolescence, lots of sleepless nights, lots of bloody sheets, lots of um, itchy, itchy, itchy every day. My, um, my parents sought out the uh, best dermatologist that they could find uh, and also frequently would look for other uh, homeopathic ways of dealing with my eczema or trying to find some relief for me. I remember going to um, health stores before that was mainstream and all the different and various things that they tried. Um, I do remember those uh, from having, you know, honey or Crisco smeared on my skin as a child. <laughs> I had frequent visits to the um, to the dermatologist and. Um, Usually it was a crowd in the room, um, sometimes cameras to kind of document uh, my case, which was which was pretty severe at the time. Um, and it was a consistent struggle throughout my uh, throughout my childhood. So in my in my twenties, when my um, you know eczema started to flare again pretty severely, I went through multiple providers to try to find an answer and some help. And I was met with a lot of um, here's some topical steroids, here's some immune suppressants, and also some phototherapy. Um, and it was. It was a struggle in finding a provider that I felt spent time listening to my concerns and um, trying to find a different route because the things that were being prescribed to me weren't providing any relief. Um, And so, and at the time, there weren't as many options available as there are today, but it got to the point where when I was in such an extreme flare, I didn't feel necessary to reach out to my provider because I didn't feel like they would have any other answer for me or any um, anything new to try and that there would be no relief for me. So it was a very dark time for me um, that, I can, uh, that I can recall very clearly. Um, and, I remember actually um, I was pregnant with my son during one of my very, very severe flares and I'm in my late 20s and my mom had come over and it had gotten to the point where I was in so much pain um, that just taking a shower or putting clothes on brought me to tears. Like, like I remember 
being in my bedroom and it was summer and the window unit with the air conditioner and just trying to desperately to find some relief and standing in front of it and blasting it and just sobbing because I had to go to work and I couldn't get dressed. As you've heard in this video, atopic dermatitis can take a significant toll on quality of life for both patients and their families. So now let's take a look at some other complications associated with atopic dermatitis. And then we're going to come back to this to uh, a patient later to hear about her latest experiences with treatment. Other atopic dermatitis-associated complications that we see very frequently can be uh, underappreciated or difficult to diagnose. And the most important one there, I believe, is allergic contact dermatitis. You can get comorbid allergic contact dermatitis on top of atopic dermatitis, and it really does change your medical decision-making and the best way to approach treatment. Skin infection is really common in people with atopic dermatitis, and the incidence of skin infections is increased in those with moderate to severe disease. This includes a whole variety of microbes, and they can present typically, but more often, especially in people with severe disease, they present in an occult way where they just don't really pay attention to the typical clinical patterns that you see, especially for herpes simplex, but molluscum as well, dermatophyte, group A streptococcus. And, and to a lesser extent, I think uh, as infection is Staphylococcus aureus. So that's a colonizer of people with atopic dermatitis. Practically their whole skin surface is heavily colonized with Staph Oris, and it's just a manifestation of uh, a microbiome alteration that really serves to trigger the disease in a kind of a vicious cycle. Other immune dysfunction has been reported as more common in this population too. Uh, conditions like alopecia areata, celiac disease, vitiligo, and in children I see quite a bit who have evidence of primary immune deficiency, especially again in those with moderate to severe disease. So we're going to talk about a, a specific case. So this is a patient that I actually followed who has a history of eczema since infancy, very typical. He has itch that interferes with his sleep every single night, despite adequate amounts of a high, a mid-potency topical corticosteroid where that he's using pretty much regularly every other day in adequate amounts and topical calcineurin inhibitors as a maintenance treatment twice a day. Time-consuming, difficult approach, but he's doing this. I've done a little bit of a workup on him. His total IgE, as it is in most patients, is elevated in his case. I'd say moderately elevated, greater than 2,000. And he also underwent patch testing, which was positive only for tocopherol. And he's been avoiding that. He also has clinical evidence of ichthyosis vulgaris, as 50% of children do who have atopic dermatitis. He has allergic rhinitis and frequent nocturnal cough. But he's otherwise been growing well and he's been healthy. So, you know, how do we ass assess the severity of his disease? What do my colleagues have to say about that? Well, thank you. I think this is, uh, this is not the typical case, if you will, in the sense that fortunately a few kids are this sick. But here it's enormously important that you really get a good assessment of the severity of AD right now in the period where you see the patient and also uh, before. I think that, first of all, I'd like to um, share with my colleagues that I have seen so many times how we uh, try to wait this period out. You see very severe eczema in, in early and mid-childhood, and then you just hope for this to resolve by itself. And, and it may in some patients, but it'll take a long time. So we have to be very serious about really assessing the severity, the burden on the patient, the burden on the family, and, and make the appropriate measures to reduce the disease. 
Thanks, thanks, uh, Jacob. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think sometimes in a very busy clinic, it can be quite difficult to do, you know, really objective as well as subjective, uh, scoring that, you know, Dr. Secret has, uh, has explained. Um, and, and, and we at least do the IGA. Um, once we decide that the patient is quite severe, and if we do decide that, you know, maybe this patient, uh, is a candidate for more systemic treatment, uh, we will, do at least a an easy score and we have we have it on our computer so it's quite easy to do so um for most patients i would say the mild ones the moderate ones we we don't really do the uh, objective scoring but definitely in the severe ones we do um and sometimes it's good as well you know when you start treatment and and you want to follow them it's sometimes uh good to to to, to do the to, to follow on with with serial easy scores and it actually shows parents as well you know uh, you know, that, that improvement, that objective improvement. It's difficult to do a subjective scores. We have done the DLQI for some of our older patients, um, but it's time consuming and I find it's, it's really quite subjective. So usually we, we, we do ask about sleep and, um, you know, missing of school and missing of, uh, of activities at school. Um, and, you know, uh, number of times I have to see a doctor for, for flares. Yeah. So that's how we usually assess in the clinic. Thank you. You know, one of the reasons I, I selected two pictures of this patient is that, you know, he has a typical involvement, which I would say would be moderate or even in some uh, settings severe. But when he's flaring, he's clearly severe. And for a severity assessment, and I see many children who will come into my office and their skin is pretty clear. It would be like clear, almost clear at the worst. And parents have seen commercials about aggressive treatments and they want to try those. And I, I say to them, you know, one of the, one of the variables is children who have moderate to severe disease are never <laughs> clear to almost clear, you know, in the setting of no treatment. And so I, I find it reassuring to tell parents whose children have skin disease that goes away intermittently is that they're not in that category because the kids with moderate to severe disease are never clear. I have a, a few more remarks. So I completely agree, Dr. Ko. The, the, um, the right thing to do is make an easy score in IGA if you're, if you're more in a hurry. But I think the problem is that in a busy clinic, you know, out in, in the trenches, there may not be enough time for you to do the easy score. And perhaps, I mean, you see patients with so many other conditions. So the, the incident kit with such serious eczema um, you know, is a bit unusual in your clinic. What I think is important is really to, to talk to the family and hear what the status is. And if you sense that even though you use topical corticosteroids, the right amounts and you, you perhaps there is even an overuse, I think it's so important that you, you have a good eye to eye conversation with the parents about what to do. And, and while doing that, you really get also, this sense of how, how much impact it has on the family. And, and I know we shouldn't jump to, to treatment at this point, but I just want to really raise uh, a flag here that you, you have to make sure that the parents understand that choosing not to do something is also a choice. And that may be a bad choice for the family and for the child. I completely agree with that. And then to touch on the issue of how do you know that you've failed topical therapy? Because almost by definition, moderate to severe disease that, that deserves systemic therapy is a child who's failed topical treatment. I call that beyond topical therapy. And I guess we can talk about that in a little bit more detail, but 
what I do is I really measure, very carefully monitor both the amounts and frequency of topical corticosteroids in particular that patients need. And I always uh, give them a steroid-sparing alternative, a topical calcineurin inhibitor or one of the new ones that's emerging, to supplement topical corticosteroid treatment if they need daily topical treatment. But that's fraught with all kinds of access issues as well in, in the United States. Yeah. And also, you, you know, here we see the total ID of more than 2000. We see tocopherol uh, contact allergy. And, you know, sometimes that's a decoy. I do a lot of patch testing. I find it so important to, you know, rule out contact allergy. As you said, it can be allergic contact dermatitis as a differential. But it's also important that the, the parents understand once you have really established this is AD, the, it's AD that driven the severity here that we have to rule out that there are other ways out. So, you know, and uh, too, too strong a focus on contact allergies or, you know, respiratory allergies or food allergies can sometimes also be very, um, very troublesome, if you will, and, and have a price because this will prevent you from choosing the right treatment. Yeah, and then in Singapore, I think we see quite a lot of patients and, and, and families with uh, steroid phobia. And that leads to really underuse of, of, of treatment. And, you know, I can give them 10 tubes, but, but they only use one tube, you know. And so, you know, I think, I think that's a major problem that we see in, in, in Asia. Um, I think the other problem sometimes that I see in the clinic is, you know, when patients, um, when, when the children come in with their parents, um, the, the child is not very affected by the eczema, but the, the parents are. And in those cases, you know, um, do we then want to, step up treatment, you know, the child may be subjectively, you know, very well. And he's going to school, he's playing with his friends, he's mixing very well, he's sleeping at night. But the parents, you know, they, they somehow, you know, in Asian society, they, they, they want the skin to be in a perfect shape. And I think there's that disconnect sometimes, you know, between what the parents feel and the child feels as well. And, and, and sometimes it can be difficult to, to take a decision on whether to, to step up treatment in those cases. I completely agree with that. You know, as a strictly pediatric provider, I think it's really important to recognize and not treat the parents. <laughs> but uh, on the other side of the coin, there are parents, as you said, who are phobic about any treatment. And as Dr. Tyson said, that's also, you know, a risk. So it's up to us as the clinicians to really, you know, sort all that out because the child is the one who needs the treatment. I, I love both, both viewpoints here. And just to bridge it because it's the same experience I have. This is why you need to, you, you need to get to know the parents. You need to get to know the families. So what I often do if I have a severe patient is I see them fairly frequently in the beginning. I make it a priority to see such a patient in one or two weeks. I want to make sure the treatment works. And if it doesn't work, then I make, want to make sure that we find another solution. So I think getting to know the family and thereby the 80 severity and the flares and, and chronicity is just very impactful and very important for, for the future treatment. I completely agree. <laughs> That's good. I, I think we have to move on now because um, this was a great discussion. Thank you so much. And, and then I will um, go to my uh, presentation, which really is an introduction to the targeted therapies in, in moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And to do this, um, I'll start by just digging into some of the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. And one thing that we have learned in recent years is that the T helper cell, that is the TH uh, profile that we learned so much about in the past, is not becoming obsolete. Don't get me wrong, but now we talk about type 2 inflammation. 
And type 2 inflammation is bridging the T helper cells that were TH2 uh, skewed in, in atopic dermatitis and other allergic disorders. And it's bridging that into all the other sense cells of the skin that also uh, secrete uh, these type 2 inflammatory cells or cy- sorry, cytokines. And that is typically IL-4, IL-13. And then we also have roles of IL-5, IL-31, and even IL-22 and IL-10 if, if we want to just add them all on, on, the, on the plate here. And now let's try to look at um, the underlying pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis with this short video clip. Atopic dermatitis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease driven, in part, by type 2 inflammation. Type 2 inflammation occurs when the type 2 immune response becomes dysregulated. Mediators of type 2 inflammation include eosinophils, mast cells, Th2 cells that produce cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, ILC2s, and IgE-producing B cells. In atopic dermatitis, increased IL-4 and IL-13 signaling is a key driver of the inflammatory pathway, contributing to clinical features of the disease. IL-31 signaling is also known to play a role in the AD pathophysiology. A cascade of IL-4 and IL-13 signaling mediated by type 2 cells promotes the proliferation of other type 2 cytokine-producing cells, and thereby type 2 cytokines, which perpetuates the type 2 inflammatory response. Atopic dermatitis may be driven by an interplay between underlying chronic type 2 immune dysregulation and epidermal barrier dysfunction. This interplay is further influenced by genetic and environmental factors. Itch effects are central to AD pathophysiology. IL-4 and IL-13 signaling may potentiate neuronal responses due to acute paratogens such as IL-31 and histamine. Barrier dysfunction and the itch-scratch response both contribute to the formation of lesions. IL-4 and IL-13 also inhibit antimicrobial peptides, upregulate adhesion molecules, and indirectly inhibit protective enzymes at the skin barrier, which encourages bacterial colonization and penetration by bacteria and viruses and increases the risk for infection. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds to the shared alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor and therefore inhibits IL-4 and IL-13 signaling. By inhibiting IL-4 and IL-13 signaling, type 2 inflammation is reduced, skin barrier function and lesions improve, and the itch-scratch cycle improves. So that was nice. I think that really gave us a good overview. I think what's important here is to understand that we have some key cytokines, that's IL-4 and IL-13, the way we understand it today. And here we um, see that both the uh, T helper cells uh, will be affected by IL-4 and predominantly IL-4 to become the TH2 cells that I spoke about before. And what you also see here is that there are various targets for some of the biologics that have been used in asthma, that have been used in chronic spontaneous urticaria, such as omelisumab, and then also dupilumab, and some of the uh, uh, 13 inhibitors that have already been marketed and some of them that are on the way. So dupilumab is the, the first biologic approved for atopic dermatitis. We know very well uh, how it works since it really inhibits uh, IL-4 and IL-13 signaling through inhibition of IL-4 receptor alpha. And really, um, this is a very targeted approach where we know the key skin cytokine in atopic dermatitis, for me, that's IL-13 is blocked, but also IL-4 that to me really bridges into um, the, the respiratory uh, diseases, including asthma, 
and rhinitis. Now, it can be used both with and without topical corticosteroids. It depends on patient response and also, of course, the baseline severity and, and basically how much fuel or power do we need to reduce uh, AD to a minimum. Now, there are some adverse events that are known uh, when using dupilumab. We have ejection site reactions. I think this is rarely a complaint in my clinic. And then some, some patients uh, develop dry eyes, that pinky eye, where we know that um, the meibomian glands um, seem to uh, be less efficient, and probably there's even goblet cell deficiency as an end-stage result of, uh, of eye inflammation. But what's important is that it's preventable. We can recommend uh, artificial tears uh, for patients uh, when they start up there, the treatment with dupilumab, and if there is any signal, we can treat it with uh, mild topical corticosteroids for the eyes, and we can refer them to ophthalmologists, and that way we can really uh, control the disease. Now, we are now seeing some uh, data from the long-term efficacy of uh, dupilumab in adults with atopic dermatitis. We have up to 172 weeks of treatment. And uh, needless to say, when you have patients who are on a drug for five years, you will lose some uh, during the, the five-year period. Some will move away from the clinical trial sites where they were, they were treated in the beginning. Some will have resolution of the disease. A few will have um, a lack of efficacy um, or have the side effects that make them stop the treatment. But what we have learned here is that only 3.6% of the patients in the Pilimat trial have left the trial due to... Um, to uh, some adverse, adverse events that were noted during this trial. But it's just to tell you, we have good data showing that the, the safety over time is really good. But what we need is really a replacement with uh, real-world evidence because obviously there is a dropout of, of studies um, like the one I just described. We also start to see long-term treatment data from uh, pediatric patients aged uh, 6 to 12 years uh, you see here 34-week data, and again, what we see is really sustained efficacy, and we say uh, in, the, in the IGA sc score here of 0, 1, you can see that's up to half of the patients that remain with that uh, treatment outcome, and we can also see uh, here the, the nice, relatively fast drop in easy score that is also maintained over time, and here we have patients with uh, different weights, so therefore it's uh, treatment with either 200 or 300 milligram dupilumab every uh, second week or 300 milligram every fourth week. So if we go down to the uh, preschool, the infants, uh, I'll try to show uh, relatively quickly some of the data. And so here in the first uh, slides, I will show you what happens if you just give uh, subcutaneous doses uh, based on weight, high and low dose in, in, in these children. Here really see uh, how the easy score uh, goes down in all these patients. It's not fast, but it's relatively steady. And then after three weeks, you have the peak, and then we have a slight decrease again in, in easy efficacy, indicating that we need another injection to maintain the efficacy that is obtained. So here's the key uh, study that I want to share with you. 162 children went into this double-blind placebo-controlled study, 16-week study, and then based on weight, we had injection of either 200 or 300 milligram dupilumab every fourth week. The children weighed six, six months to six years. They had moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, meaning they had an IGA score of three or higher. And they were inadequately controlled. 
with the topical therapies. The primary endpoint was after 16 weeks, an IgA score of 0 or 1, and there was a co-primary endpoint, as we see in most of these AD trials, of an EC75. Basically, here you can see that all the end, the endpoints of the, um, the primary and secondary endpoints were basically met. And this is tremendous news, uh, for, for patients out there. This is the first time we have an effective treatment for, for, uh, pediatric patients with AD. The study was just published in the Lancet. Uh, so for those of you who want more details, I really strongly uh, recommend that you read the article. Uh, the, all the, the key data is in there. But look at the, the other line. You can see after 16 weeks, and I remind you, dupilumab is not the fastest molecule we have out there. So we know from adults that you have increased improvement until week 24. And there we can see here after 16 weeks, 28% achieved an IgA score of 0 1. So that is clear, almost clear skin compared to 4% in placebo. So really a dramatic effect, I think, of, of dupilumab in this age group. Let's jump to another biologic. So trelokinumab, an anti-IL-13. So it's the free IL-13 uh, 13 that is um, inhibited uh, by, this, um, by this biologic. Now, it's approved for adults with atopic dermatitis and also recently adolescents. So, so here's uh, a new good treatment solution for our patients. I think it's very uh, similar to what we see with dupilumab in the sense that we have some that have injection site reactions. We have some that experience similar conjunctivitis issues or pink eye problems as with dupilumab. But here we actually have lower rates. Uh, if we if we compare the data, we can't do that, but it seems like to be even safer uh, or having an even more safety uh, favorable safety profile than dupilumab. But but at the other hand, this comes at the expense of perhaps slightly less efficacy in the majority of patients. So the trade-off here with Trello is it's slightly less efficacious, but it seems to have uh, less uh, eye problems than dupilumab. Nemolizumab, anti-IL-31 receptor antagonist. Uh, We have here phase three trial data. This is a molecule I'm not that familiar with uh, in a clinical context, but, but having read the data, having seen the data, um, IL-31 inhibition seems to induce a fairly rapid uh, itch reduction. Um, I'm not equally impressed with the reduction on AD uh, severity scores, um, but it will for sure be nice to get out in the toolbox in the clinics because we can here address uh, the AD patients that probably have a stronger itch problem than eczema severity problem. So, so also very promising new agent that hopefully will get approved not too far in the future. Leprakizumab, we just saw the phase three data at the AD and the 52-week data at the EADV that was held in Milan a few weeks ago. Now, this is a new uh, biologic. It seems to be more efficacious than trilokinumab, and it seems to be e- equally efficacious with dupilumab if we just do what we can do, compare the data from one trial to another. Then just some more news from uh, the EADV in Milan. Uh, this is a study that um, that we did in, in Copenhagen. We followed 450 children uh, from birth, and we tape-stripped them at birth and at two months. And then we wanted to study whether skin biomarkers pre- could predict the onset of AD later in childhood, that is within the first two years, uh, two years of observation time. So this is a clinical diagnosis of AD. And what we could see is that some lipids, um, ceramides, if they were reduced, that was a strong, strong predictor of developing atopic dermatitis. 
Well, we could also see when we started the pro-inflammatory cytokines that TARC, this is uh, not the TH2 master switch, but it's one of the important ones for TH2 or type 2 inflammatory uh, skew was actually elevated in the children that developed AD later and especially in those that developed moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. With that, I'm done with my presentation. I'm happy to re-invite Dr. Koh and Dr. Siegfried back on the floor uh, so we can discuss the continuation of treatment of this patient. So, so we learned before that now it is AD. We are agreed that it looks very severe. And the question is, is this patient eligible for biological therapy? I'm happy to hear your opinion. I'll just chime in here. The ones that I first put on biologic therapy, you know, when it was still new and we were all feeling our way around it, were patients who were what I call panatopic. So those who have significant atopic morbidities, as well as a elevated IgE, which we know is not a great biomarker, but it's one that is consistent with severity. The higher the total IgE, the more severe the disease. And then, uh, again, some of the children who had evidence of primary immune deficiency, especially those who had frequent recurrent herpes or very widespread molluscum or widespread tinea, those are the first patients that I put on biologics. And they've all done incredibly well, you know, after five years. So maybe I can chime in as well. Um, we probably started using the Pilumab about four years ago um, for the children. Uh, we started with the adolescents and then we slowly went down the age. And uh, our youngest patient that we have treated is three years of age. Um, generally, I would say who, which patients are eligible for biologic therapy. I think the, the, the marker has come down. You know, when we first started, you know, we, we made sure that patients would have failed other second, third line treatments like phototherapy and uh, systemic immunosuppressors before we even considered giving the pilumab. But seeing how well it's done in so many of our patients, you know, I think we've really um, now gone from, you know, once they've failed topical therapies and there's really a you know quality of life that's really affected and, you know, easy scores are at least in the moderate severe range, we actually take that conversation earlier now as compared to three to four years ago when we first started uh, doing the pilumab. And we have definitely reduced our use of systemic immunosuppressants. I definitely start less patients on cyclosporin, methotrexate, and azotyprin now. Um, and, and we even have patients, uh, parents coming in, you know, saying, you know, I, I really want to get my child to start on the pilumab. So I think that that bar has really come down over the last three to four years of, of using the pilumab. And we are seeing, you know, the, 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 the great improvements in, 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 in our children. Of course, you know, treating children always worry about long-term side effects. And, you know, we only have data for 10, 15 years. Um, we don't know in 20, 30 years, you know, what, what's going to happen. So that's something that we always uh, discuss with, with, with the parents as well. Thanks. Thank you. I, I um, so some years ago, we put an eight month year old on, uh, on Dupilumab. Uh, that was a patient with Netherton syndrome, so completely off label. Um, but it's more to say the, the adult data where we have significant exposure time. I just showed you the five year data, but, but I remind us all that we have data from before that because it was approved in 2017. So, you know, the adult Dupilumab exposure program, including asthma, et cetera, we have massive amount of data. So to me, it looks very safe. Now we're moving down in pediatric populations. We can 
We can transfer that knowledge, but as a clinician, if I have a very severe case, similar to what I said with the Netherton, this is a kid that was really um, in a in, in a very bad shape, then I feel very comfortable knowing the safety baggage from from adults and adolescents. I feel comfortable. We have you know two year olds in in Dupilumab now, and it works nicely. But I think we are a bit back to if we have something we know works that we we feel confident using, then if the the uh, the traditional immunosuppressants that we used to 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 use in the past, like methotrexate, um, acetylprene, mycophenolate, stuff that you don't want necessarily uh, a young child to be treated with, then I find it safe to use dupilumab, and and I mean similar does the uh, the EMA and the FDA. So 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 I'm I'm sure that um, this is going to be the way we treat moving forward. Now with dupilumab, but in the soon future, near future, hopefully also with others. But but I wanna wanna you know go straight to this. When are you eligible for biological therapy? Because we we had a publication um, in the JAD 2020 by by Eric Simpson, you know, doing a mind map in adults. But but for children, when do we really feel here? You need to grab for either methotrexate immunosuppressants or biological therapy? I'd love to ask you, uh, Dr. Siegfried. You know, weighing the risk-benefit ratio is always important. And as you mentioned pre- previously, you know, you got to consider the risk of the disease. And in children, we all have been very hopeful that early, early disease modification, you know, similar to early disease modification for the rheumatic diseases, for example, can have a impact on the natural history of disease. And that's why it would be so important to really consider earlier treatment rather than delaying that treatment. But in terms of the nuts and bolts, who is what I call beyond topical therapy? And there are just so many variables about that. I mean, mostly it's just so hard to do topical therapy. You know, you have to monitor the quantities and the frequencies. People have to understand the difference between a topical corticosteroid and a steroid sparing alternative. And for many in my patient population, it's almost impossible to understand that. Some people do get it. And it's not that topical therapy doesn't work because it does. You just have to know the details about how to use it. And you have to be able to get access to those medications, especially with steroid sparing alternatives. One final parameter that I think about in in deciding which patients are eligible for biologic therapy is truly their history of frequent infections. And prior to having availability of this targeted type treatment, I I had no other choices but to put children on immunosuppressive therapies. And these included children who had recurrent herpes or severe molestum or or recurrent strep infections, otitis media, history of pneumonia. And I really do take that into account with skipping over any kind of immunosuppressant medication straight to a targeted biologic therapy. Uh, because I think, you know, I've seen adverse effects in patients who I did put on immunosuppressant medications, and I haven't seen those in the biologic therapy treated patients. This is such a good point. And, and this is just the last point for me now that you bring it up. We, we did discuss allergic contact dermatitis. And, and this is something we should always think about before we put a child on, on systemics. That could be, you know, allergic contact dermatitis to the topical corticosteroid. And then there is one very uncommon thing that, but I still think it's important we remember as clinicians is that some of these patients, they have, you know, recurrent eczema herpeticum. And we have to really look at the eczema. So sometimes I don't get lazy, but but get me right, you know, you stare at the eczema from, from your chair. You don't bother to really study it, but you have to do this because sometimes 
It's just, you know, chronic viral infections and the treatment is acyclovir. You have to treat with something very banal and then you, you have a patient, a child that is with very little eczema moving forward if you just continue there on that. That's, this is uncommon. We just have to think about it. So I think we have to move on to your presentation, Dr. Ko, if you're ready. Thank you, uh, Prof. And now I'd like to just end off with the last section of this uh, webinar. And I'll be speaking on shared decision-making, which is so important whenever we manage patients with uh, atopic dermatitis or any other chronic disease. So what is shared decision-making? It's really an approach where both the clinicians, patients, as well as caregivers share, you know, whatever best available evidence there is um, when faced with the task of making a decision. And then the patient's are supported by the clinicians in terms of trying to come to a decision on um, after considering these options to have a final decision on the treatment. So what are the goals of treatment in atopic dermatitis? Of course, when a patient comes in and a flare, it's very important to really bring down that flare and to you know bring the patient's quality of life much better. And then find and once we bring that flare down, it's really to prevent recurrence. And how do we do that? I think um, of course it depends on how that that baseline is. If the baseline of the patient is quite severe, you really have to try to bring that down uh, even more and to try to really bring that baseline down. And to bring that baseline down, you really can then stop the recurrence from occurring. And of course, you know, in the long run, we always have to think about safety and how we can treat our patients sustainably, especially in our pediatric patients who will be on treatment, you know, for, for years. And so we really want to try to minimize that, um, the side effects of treatment as well. So when do we, when is a good time, you know, to, for, to consider systemic therapy for our patients? Uh, definitely, you know, we consider in patients who have moderate or severe disease. And I think very important is also to consider if alternative diagnosis have been considered. And we did talk about some of these, including, um, allergies, uh, contact allergens, uh, how other diseases like maybe it's psoriasis or even my, um, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma have all these other diagnoses have, have they been excluded? And then subsequently, you know, I think patient education is very, very important. Has the patient been adequately um, edu educated on how to use the creams, how to use topical therapies? And if he has not, we want to really, you know, provide education to these patients and then put them on intensive topical therapy, give them a very adequate trial. And I would say probably, you know, a few weeks or sometimes even one or two months, if the patient still has persistent, moderate to severe disease or a very impact quality of life despite these, you know, very good intensive topical treatments, then we want to move on to consider next line, which would include full therapy as well as systemic treatment, either with systemic immunosuppressants or with biologics. So we really want to evaluate the whole patient and this slide, you know, gives us you know, tells us that we really have to ask patients about their sleep quality, about quality of life, you know, discuss ways to avoid flares and triggers. We see a lot of patients who still, you know, come in contact with um, dusty environments. Um, and, and in Singapore, where, 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 I, where I practice, you know, we see a lot of patients with a lot of stress. So we have to try to discuss some of these triggers and to avoid or minimize these, these triggers. We really want to assess patients for comorbid conditions as well. And we really want to look for mental health issues, psychosocial impact. And finally, you know, really to educate patients as well as their caregivers on the treatment of a proper treatment of atopic dermatitis. So now let's go back to our patient and really hear about her experience with treatment and with her healthcare providers. I think the other thing that I noticed pretty soon on with this provider was 
His goal was always to educate me so that I could really understand um, what the goal of the treatment was. It has been uh, an interesting journey for me. I was on it and then we decided we were gonna have another baby. So I came off of it and I went back on it when my daughter was about five months old. And um, I remember going to see my provider and saying, I, you know, I think this is as good as it's gonna get. Like my skin was was the best it's ever been, but I still had, um, you know, patches. I was still needing to moisturize multiple times a day. I was still um, really held back as far as my quality of life is considered. I remember going to see him one time and and saying, well, I think, I think this is it. I think this is as good as it's going to get for me. And I was pleased. I'm like, I'm happy with it. Maybe, you know, maybe we should consider coming off of it or talk about um, you know what what our next steps would be and I remember really clearly him my provider saying you know I think we can do better like I don't think this is the best I think there's more I think I think we can get clearer I kind of didn't believe him and it's funny now because that was about a year ago and now I am in a place that I've never been before my skin is probably as close, I mean, as normal as I've ever felt. Um, I don't need to moisturize uh, daily, like, I mean, throughout the day. I need to moisturize every day, but it's not throughout the day. Um, I think my ability to parent my children has really changed. I, I'm much more patient and um, I, I can see a real difference and, and it's been an interesting journey for me because now I'm 37 and I feel like I, I'm experiencing a level of comfort that I've never had before, so I'm learning a lot of things about myself and really starting to discover who I am as a person. So I think this clip really has shown the importance of a very collaborative relationship that we need to have with our patients, including you know really educating our patients very well and to really implement a shared decision-making approach. So this slide talks about the importance of patient-caregiver uh, communication and education. So Patients, you know, always describe their problems. I think it's very important to listen to them, really to, to find out what their concerns are. You know, we have a lot of patients who have, uh, you know, phobias about treatment. We have patients who, um, just, you know, we need to find out how severe they are in terms of how their lifestyle is affected. And as I had mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes the patient, you know, the children themselves are not so affected by treat, by, by the disease, but the, by the family or the parents are. So in these kind of cases, you know, we may not want to step up treatment so early or sometimes we, you know, when, when parents are, are, you know, not as forthcoming in terms of treatment, but the child is very affected, you know, we really have to treat the child and, and to listen to what the child says. So now going back to the case uh, of the four-year-old boy, I think um, we really want to discuss how we can approach shared decision-making in our patients with uh, severe atopic dermatitis. I think you've covered it very well in your summary slides on the subject. It, 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 you have to tailor the treatment decision to every family because the things that are important to them. But uh, and as um, Dr. Tucson said, trust is the one of the most important things. Having a relationship with patients, I rarely 
um, jump to a big gun therapy the first time I meet a family. I want to be sure that they failed topical treatment or that we've uncovered some of the other triggers that can contribute to their disease rather than just jumping to a big gun medication. So communication and trust is, is really important and knowing that they've failed topical treatment. And then beyond that, as you nicely outlined, there are so many parameters to go over with patients, but to make them feel like they're participants in the process. I completely agree with what's been said. I think another important point typically, and this not only goes for children, but also adults, of course, is that um, patients and families are very interested in for how long they're going to be at this treatment. And this can be very difficult to answer, to be honest. So, so I feel that typically the best way is to say you're going to be on it for a while. We will follow you closely and when possible, we will taper it and remove it. But, but I think that's, that's the hard thing also, how to make an exit strategy for these uh, issues. And, and basically, and perhaps that's a bit out of context here, but I think it's important to bring up. Overall, there is no discussion yet on exit strategies in atopic dermatitis treatment. And, you know, when you speak to colleagues, um, there are many different approaches, but this is something that patients are interested in. So I think as clinicians, you should start, you know, thinking about it, reflecting, so you have an answer that you can share with your patient. And of course, this is based on your approach and your, your knowledge and experience and what they think is, is the best path moving forward. I'm so glad you brought that up about long-term care, because I think it's really important to help families understand that uh, atopic dermatitis and atopy in general is a chronic condition that we don't have a cure for that. But we may have a mod, uh, an opportunity to modify the disease course, especially in younger children, but per possibly in older patients too, depending on what their phenotype is. But everybody wants to know that from the beginning. Does this mean I'm going to be on this treatment for the rest of my life? And that's something that they're not ready to accept. <laughs> but making no. it clear that they have a chronic disease and that we don't have long, long-term follow-up um, on any treatment that we use is important. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree with that as well. And, you know, a lot of patients, a lot of parents, when they bring their kids in, you know, the first question they ask me is, will my kid outgrow the eczema? And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I tell them honestly, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a chronic disease. And as Dr. Secret said, it is a chronic disease. And, you know, um, we, we really are looking for more of a control rather than a cure. And if they are looking for a cure, they'll be very, very um, dissatisfied with treatment, whatever treatment that we give them. So I, think, I, I often say, I wish there was a cure. I wish I could identify one food that your child was allergic to and avoid that and everything would go away. I really do wish that. And one day I do think that we might have it. I, I think something that uh, I'm not sure whether we should bring it up here, but uh, I did speak to Dr. Siegfried about this before we started was the cost of treatment. Um, you know, I, I, and this will vary between the countries and between continents, but in Singapore, um, probably 50% of our patients are on insurance, uh, treatment, uh, on insurance payment, but we get about maybe 20% that's supported by the government and, uh, 30% still pay out of pocket. So, you know, if it's something that's quite costly, you know, after I, a lot of parents will, after six months or a year, will, will bring up the question about whether we can reduce you know, the, the number of treat, the, the, the cost, the, the number of uh, injections or the frequency and even to take it off, you know, once the child is better. And, and sometimes, you know, I tell them that if, 
we don't go long enough, we don't bring down that baseline, you know, the risk of flaring is there again. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if you, you face that in, in, in your, in your practice. No, I, we, we don't because it paid for by the government. I think it's an enormously important point and we have a global audience here today. So, so thank you for sharing those important insights, Dr. Ko. Yes, we have um, a problem in the United States. It's so wonderful for you in Denmark that you don't have that. But it's not just, I think, the, the personal uh, out-of-pocket costs for patients. And there's also a global cost issue. And, um, you know, we don't know how to solve that. But it's something that's important for all of us clinicians to uh, pay attention to. So in summary of today's discussion, I just want to highlight some of the, the key points. We have learned and discussed how uh, impactful atopic dermatitis can be on the burden of patients and their families. We have discussed some of the pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis and thereby the rationale for some of the targeted therapies that are now available, not only for adults and adolescents, but also the youngest children, down to infancy really. And then finally, we have highlighted how important shared decision-making is in atopic dermatitis, both the, the, the strategy to initiate treatment, also the exit strategy and discussion around uh, important side effects. So I've been very happy to have these discussions with my colleagues uh, from Singapore and the United States. So thanks for your time. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash RBZ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.